Hello, grace and peace. Thank you for tuning in. It is a real joy to be able to worship with you today. Uh, today we're launching a new series of sermons in, uh, in the book of Jonah entitled In the Same Boat. When you read the book of Jonah at a surface level, you have this understanding that there's two groups of people. There's the good religious people that Jonah represents, and then there's the bad, violent, pagan people that the Ninevites represent. But the more that you dig into the book, you begin to see that everyone is in the same boat. They're all sinners in need of grace and healing. We are in the same boat as Jonah and as the Ninevites. Yeah, and I'm so excited about this series because we've seen God's hand at work over this series, His providential nature in just setting this series for this time. You know, we were in Brazil uh, at in the beginning of March together as a team with uh, our sister church, Aponte, and there God placed on the heart of our family of churches to, to preach through this book starting today. And it's so timely because this is a book that speaks to racism and nationalism and tribalism, and I believe that God has a great word for each of us and for our church in this season. Yeah, right now we're experiencing some of those same things, so it's very providential. Um, we need healing. We live in a broken world, but it's, it's really legitimately hurting right now. And so my hope is that when we go through this series, um, we will find healing through the Word of God. Uh, today we're going to get into the heart of God, the heart of man, and the heart of the gospel and how the gospel moves us towards uh, reconciliation as we're all on the same boat. We're all trying to find a safe passage. So first, the heart of God. The heart of God is always moving from the center to the margins. So our story starts in verse 1 and verse 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. It starts as almost every single prophetic book in the Bible. God's word coming to the prophet. Uh, prophets were God's messengers to God's people. They brought God's word to God's people. Oftentimes, in times of great tribulation, now, what's interesting about the book of Jonah is what we read in verse 2. When God comes to Jonah, the word is this, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. What is shocking is that most prophets, or probably every single other prophet in the Bible, they were called by God to speak to the people of God. Jonah has an unprecedented mission. He is the one prophet that is sent to a Gentile pagan nation, and not just to any Gentile pagan nation, but to the nation of Assyria and their capital, Nineveh, the superpower of the world of Jonas's day. You know, the Assyrians were violent people. They were one of the most violent and cruel empires that has ever, ever existed. Uh, their kings would gloat their battles, uh, their battle victories by describing fields covered in corpses, cities burned to the ground. Uh, one of their kings was well known for torture, for decapitation, for dismembering. As he captured his enemies, he would skin his enemies. He would cut off their legs and one of their arms and mock them as they died by having the cut off hand shake the hand that was still attached to the body. Can you believe that? He would force you to parade through the city holding your family member's head raised on a pike. 
This guy was mean, bad. And he would record that. He recorded all those stories of his torture and his violence and these large tablets of stone that he would place in the center of the city so that everyone could read about it. And God sends Jonah to these people. Who was Jonah? Well, well, besides what we find out in this book here, uh, in the book of 2 Kings chapter 14, we, we learn that Jonah served under King Jeroboam II. And uh, unlike some of the other prophets in the Bible who spoke truth to power, Jonah was a partner to King Jeroboam. He supported his expansive military campaigns as he gained more land and more territory. Uh, Jonah, he would probably be remembered if he had died before this story as someone that was deeply patriotic, a partisan nationalist. That's who Jonah was. And a proof of that is that when God calls him to this mission, he runs away because he would rather leave his good life back home and live in a foreign land than betray his country. Jonah had his first allegiance to his earthly king rather than his heavenly king. Is that true in our days as well? Are Christians like that in our days as well? And so the shocking question of the book is, why would God send a person like Jonah to the people that he feared and he hated the most? Could this be a divine joke? And Jonah knew. Jonah knew that if there was a call and a warning to repentance, there was the possibility that judgment could be averted. He admits to that at the end of the book in chapter 4. Why would God give a chance for the people of Nineveh to experience his mercy, the enemy of his own people? Why would God do that? And I think that the message of the book is clear. The point of the book is clear. And, and, and that is that uh, God's heart breaks for the sin of the people of Nineveh, but his heart also breaks for Jonah as well. God desires to bring healing to the people of Nineveh, and through that, he wants to heal Jonah's heart as well. He sends Jonah to Nineveh with a word of warning. And then through the voices of repentance of the Ninevites, God is also speaking to Jonah. Uh, friends, we are, we are living uh, a very interesting cultural moment. We have been broken. We're in pain. I'm in pain. Many of you have cried many times in the past several weeks. It's one wave of suffering after another. But you know what? Even though my heart breaks and your heart breaks, here's what I know. That God's heart has been broken before our hearts have ever been broken. We just saw on a camera, on a phone camera, what has happened uh, to this man, George Floyd, the violence that was perpetrated upon him. And we were shocked. And we were broken. But God has been seeing this all along. Because we can't hide anything from God. And let me tell you something. Even though your heart is broken, your heart can't be more broken than God's heart. Our hearts are never broken more than God's heart is broken 
towards our condition of sin. And God wants to heal our hearts. God wants to heal the hearts of, of those who are in pain today because his heart breaks for those who have been a victim of oppression, systemic oppression, for hundreds of years that has experienced generational trauma. But his heart also breaks for the violent perpetrators, for those who are committing crimes against their fellow human beings, who are mistreating their fellow human beings, who are made in the same image that they have been made, in the image of God. And the message of the book of Jonah to us, as God is speaking to us, see, before he heals, he needs to speak. Before he heals Nineveh, God's need to speak to Nineveh. Before God heals Jonah, God needs to speak to Jonah. Before God heals us, before God addresses our pain, and before God heals us from the sin that is destroying us, he needs to speak truth to us, and it's not comfortable but he wants to draw us near because his love is always from the center to the margins. He wants to bring us back to the center. And that's what repentance looks like. Repentance is realization, a realization that my heart is far from God's heart. Re, uh, repentance is, is the desire to be where God is at and to align my heart to God's heart. And that is my hope for us, is that, that we would draw near. God's Word. Yeah, like Jonah, when we find ourselves uh, under the weight of God's Word, under the pressure of God's Word, because it wasn't like Jonah was reading the Bible. Jonah found himself under the weight and pressure of God's Word. And when we find ourselves under that same weight and under that same pressure, we got a tendency to want to move in the opposite direction. We want to hide, like you said, from God's presence, even though we know that's impossible. We want to create patterns that insulate us from what is actually breaking God's heart here. And so uh, uh, it's very easy for us to live in our own story. It takes a long time. It takes a, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of resources, a lot of teachable moments along the way that, that will allow us to change course in order for us to live in somebody else's story. That's just, a, that's just so hard uh, for us to wrap our minds. And so we're in this cultural moment, and it doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum, whether you're a victim of racism or a privilege, we have to have these conversations around the dinner table. We have to talk to our neighbors. We have to uh, 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 admit our own ignorance over these issues. We have, to, uh, um, we have to listen better. We have to become a people who absolutely loves justice because what we're seeing today is an absolute breakdown of love thy neighbor, which is something that our church and the church at large is called to do. Man, I, I love two things that you guys both said that connects to something I've been processing. You know, uh, you said that we get stuck in our own story. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Felipe, you were sharing how we see that God wants to not only heal the hearts of the Ninevites, but he wants to heal Jonah's heart too. And that God is for the healing of all of our hearts. And I think for people uh, of my complexion, this is a really confusing uh, and, and difficult time to navigate. Uh, there's a, a lot that is uh, affecting uh, people that are white. Because we look at the brutality, we look at the overt racism, we look at the oppression, and our heart breaks because we know God's heart breaks, and we don't uh, want to ever admit or think for a second that we have any kind of connection or understanding to the experience of our black and brown brothers and sisters or those who have immigrated here or indigenous people. We don't because we have been in a position of power 
and privilege, and yet we feel powerless. And even that me saying that word is a trigger, right? Privilege. Especially if I say white privilege. It's a trigger. And I'm going to be honest. For much of my life, assuming the label of being privileged, of having white privilege, is, was difficult. It was difficult because it felt like what was being thrown onto me was that any success and any advancement in life was not a result of hard work or passion or discipline, but was only a result of my skin color. And that's not what white privilege means. It doesn't mean that your hard work and your discipline and taking advantage of opportunities and success is null and void. It means that you have a different lived experience with different opportunities and different advantages, and that was true of me. I know that was true of me. Think back to when I was in high school, and I just begin to process the very fact that as a white person, you can deny privilege reveals that, in fact, you have privilege. The fact that you can deny privilege reveals that you have privilege. And when I was in high school, I remember, you know, I mentioned last Sunday in the sermon that I, I was a prodigal and I, you know, made a lot of mistakes. And I got pulled over and handcuffed and interviewed by the cops many, many times uh, when I was 16 and 17 when I started to drive. And I remember that a group of friends, we used to play this game. We had a few neighborhoods that we would go to and we would play hide and go seek in cars. That's privilege. We, we would... We would uh, find areas to hide, and you would tag people by f flickering your flashlight, your, your headlights at the car that you found that was hiding. So I found this really great spot. I was right behind this building. My friend and I were like, we pulled into this little alley in this area. We're like, they're never going to find us. We're going to have the best spot ever. My friends didn't find us, but the cops found us. And they came flying up in cop cars. They came out. They came running at the car with guns drawn, pointed at us, pulled us out of the car, handcuffed us, put us on the pavement, interviewed us, and then they let us go and said, you can't do that anymore. You see, when I was driving home, and I realized then and I realized now that at no moment did I ever feel unsafe. Never felt unsafe. Never felt like I was going to go to jail. Never felt like my, I was in, in danger. Felt like the worst that was going to happen is they're going to take down my parents' number and give them a call and say what happened. But that is not the experience of many people. That's privilege. And there's nothing I can do about it. But what can I do about it? I can ask God to heal my heart. I can ask God to educate me. I can ask God to give me empathy, to give me love, to give me compassion. I can ask God to help me to see in my own life and in the life of others and be willing to call it out when there is covert racism and discrimination. You see, when we say things like, I don't see colors, or I'm colorblind, that is not the heart of God because God sees colors. He made us this way. He made us to look like this. When we claim that there's reverse racism, that is deflecting the pain of others. It is not helpful and it is not the heart of God. When we have a white savior complex that we need to fix it and we need to, no, no, no. That's not the heart of God. God is the one that's going to save and he's going to use all types of people to heal the brokenness in our land. When we say things like facts don't care about your feelings. It is not the heart of God and is not helpful because you have no right and you will earn no right to share facts in someone's life if you don't care about their feelings, if you don't validate their feelings, if you don't listen to their feelings. You see, we need to educate ourselves. I need to educate myself, not put that on other people to do it because God's heart is to heal my heart as well as the heart of those hurting in our land. 
And yet what is true of myself and all of us is that in many ways we pull away from God's heart. We run away from God's heart and we run away from God's people. See, Jonah, as you said, Felipe, in verse 3, it says that after he receives this call from God to go to the Ninevites, he doesn't want to go. Verse 3 says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. This is our heart running away from God in his presence and running away from God's people. God says, go to Nineveh. And Jonah says, I'm going to go the exact opposite direction. You see, Tarshish is, was found in modern day Spain, right near the city of Seville. So he would have been getting in a ship to go across the entire Mediterranean, almost as far as he possibly could go to the end of the world at that time. He was running, it says in the passage, from God's presence and from God's people. He wanted to go so far away from God that there was no chance he was going to meet anybody that worshipped God. And he was intentional. It says he goes to the city of Joppa, which is a city where there would have been very few Israelites. So he would have been on a ship with people who are not Israelites, that don't worship God. Modern-day Tel Aviv. Yeah, modern-day Tel Aviv. And he was running intentionally away from God. You see, God's heart comes to Jonah and says, I want you to go to a specific people. Because God's heart is for all people, but God's heart is certainly for specific people too. That are in pain, that are in sin, that are broken, that are crying out, that need the heart of the gospel. That need the good news of God's mercy and forgiveness. And Jonah runs away. There's a word there that's so timely for us. And it's the word, but. But Jonah rose and Fleed from the presence of God. That's a word, church, that we have to be so careful with. The word but. When we look into pain and injustice, when we hear people's stories, when we face the things that are breaking down around us, and we want to say the word but, we need to pause. We need to be really careful with that word. We, we, we see Black Lives Matter. And we see that hashtag, and we claim Black Lives Matter. And many people want to say, but all lives matter. You see, that's not the heart of God. When, when someone says black lives matter and you want to say, but all lives matter, that's not the heart of God. Why? Because in Luke chapter 15, Jesus speaks about the heart of God. He says, there's a hundred sheep, one runs away, and the 99 are safe, one's in danger. What does the shepherd do? What does God do? What does Christ do? He goes for the one in danger. He runs after the one to bring them back. The 99 don't sit there, hey, what about us? They're safe. God always runs to those that are in danger. And so God cares about all lives, but black lives matter. And so we got to be careful, church, when we say those things. Because sometimes when we use the word but, we're actually running away from the heart of God. And we feel right now with so much uncertainty, like what are we supposed to do? I don't know what we're supposed to do. I know we need to do a lot. But what we see here in this passage is that we are to run to the presence of God and his word because, as you said, God cares more about justice than we do. We run to his presence. We run to his word. We run to him in prayer. And when we're about to say but in a sentence, when we're talking with people, when we're on social media, we need to stop and we need to think and we need to say, God, where are you putting the emphasis? Where is your priority? Because I don't want to run away from you and your people. It's the heart of God for people. Yeah. 
You know, if you've been tracking with us, what I said in the beginning is the heart of God is always moving towards the margins. Mm -hmm. God is at the center. He's at the center of power. He's in control. Uh, even though there's chaos in our world, God has not lost control. But his heart is always towards those who are in the, the margins, the spiritual margins, social margins, mm -hmm. all sorts of margins. You read about uh, Jesus and the gospel accounts. That's the movement of Jesus' life, always towards the margins, towards the lepers, towards the prostitutes, tax collectors, mm -hmm. the Gentiles. But our heart, as you are talking about here, Carter, operates in a different mode. Mm -hmm. We want to be at the center. We're, we're pushing ourselves to the center. Um, you know, sin is trying to sit in God's chair, trying to be in God's place. That's what sin is. And so, you know, if you think of God's heart as one that is from the center, always moving towards the margins, we are pushing towards the center and trying to push God away yep. from the center mm -hmm. and others as well. And that's why Jonah is running away, because there is an idolatry for control. We want to take God's place. There's an idolatry for control. There's a spiritual pathology that's, that's playing into Jonah's behavior and, and our behavior as well. Even how we react and respond to certain things that bother us. We want to have control. See, we all like our world and our lives to, to function a certain way. Mm -hmm. We all have expectations of how our life should go. And whenever our plans are disrupted, whenever our peace is disrupted, it disrupts our, our environment and our world, we get angry and we get mad. We get mad at God. God, why are you allowing this to happen? Mm. Because we, 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 we want control of our lives. And uh, if we could have it our way, if the human heart could have its own way, an unregenerate human heart could have its own way, we would eliminate from our lives all the people that look differently from us, all the people that vote differently from us, all the people that, uh, that speak differently than, than we do. I mean, we look at certain groups in the world and we say, this is what's wrong with the world, that group of people. That's, that's, a, that's a picture of, of the human heart. I mean, what explains the brutality that we saw mm. last week or two weeks ago uh, in the death of George Floyd? I mean, come on, a, a man with a knee on his neck, with his, with his face pressed into the asphalt, begging for help, mm. <laughs> grasping for, 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 for air, trying to asking, I can't breathe, saying, hey, please release the pressure. And he passes out, and the knee is still on his neck. Now, I don't know what was going on in that man's heart, but here's what I can maybe assume. And, I, and it's a very dangerous place, again, to assume anything about people's hearts. But I, uh, my heart is made of the same substance as that man's heart, that cop's heart. Mm -hmm. Yours is or yours are as, as well. And I can imagine that somebody like that is angry at God because they're losing control of their country. They're losing control of their lives. I don't know what he's going through at home, but his life is, is, is losing control. And he's angry at God. And because he cannot get back at God, you know what he does? And I got this from Dan Allender. He 
denigrates the image of God. He presses the image of God with his knee to the concrete floor, the asphalt, because he's angry at God. That's what racism is. When you act upon racism, hate crimes, that's what hate crimes are. It's trying to get back at God because you can't get back at him. So you, you offend somebody that's made in his own image and likeness. You know, growing up as a, I'm a son of immigrant parents, my mom is Cuban, father is uh, Puerto Rican. Um, I would hear my grandmother constantly talk about uh, la revolucion, the revolution. Um, it was something that's uh, very traumatic for her. She would flee her oppressive government in Cuba on a boat, well, kind of like, jo like Jonah. Um, she would talk about her, her, her rights being stripped, her property being taken away. This was a trauma that she would then pass on to my mom and to a lesser degree to, my, to me and my younger brother and sister. Now, you, you had mentioned generational trauma. This is actually a, a, a term coined by psychologists, intergenerational trauma, where a person cannot contain in their experience uh, what has been traumatically overwhelming and traumatically unbearable that they would pass on or into or onto the next generation as a way to cope. And so my grandmother and my mom came here and they were discriminated against. They weren't protected from racism or discrimination. She would tell me about, you know, signs, and I'm sure you guys have seen it, no Cubans allowed, along with blacks, along with Jews, um, and tell me all of these stories. And so when, when I got the call to uh, kind of spearhead and replant our Miami Springs location, which I'm very excited about, our, our beautiful uh, little community there, um, I, I walk into about 20 or 30 elderly, <laughs> what my grandmother would call white people, <laughs> You know, um, and um, I would hear about how they would talk about Miami when they when they grew up. This is how it used to be, blah blah blah, highly, and nothing wrong with that. Um, and it was at the same time where my grandmother, and my mom came, and for the first time in my whole life, I I found myself asking myself, I wonder what they think about me. Hmm. And then the the immediate follow up was. Why am I asking myself this question? I love these people. These people are amazing. They accepted me. They, you know, they, they, they welcomed me. Uh, these people are amazing. But what was happening was that trauma that um, I didn't think it you know, ever would affect me um, because I didn't live it and I didn't care about it. I, I thought my grandmother was stuck in time, um, was actually starting to affect me. And so when I started preaching there early on, I think year two, I've been there about six years, before she passed away, my, my grandmother passed away two years ago, but she, early on in the church plant, she would go almost to every service, and she would sit there and listen to me preach. And one day I asked her, I said, Abuela, why do you, why do you come? You don't understand 99% of what I'm saying. I mean, I'm glad you're here. It's, it's one more elderly person on the attendance roll. You know, it's, it's awesome, but why do you come? And she said, oi, Anomal. <laughs> that's, you know, that's well, transliterate. That's Cuban for dummy. She's like, you know, listen, I don't come to listen to you, dummy. Tell why I come. I come to pray for you because you need it. And I come for healing for myself. And I was like, what do you, what do you mean healing? Are you sick? Are you dying? What are you, what's going on? And she's like, no, look, look at everybody around. This is the same demographic of people that at one point for their own reasons didn't accept me, didn't accept your mom. But 
I'm happy because I sit here and they're obviously accepted one of my own. Mm. And, and it, was a, it was a moment of, it was a teaching moment for me. It was a, a realization that all the things that I tried to ignore, you know, like every time she would bring it up, I'm like, oh, you know, me, my brother, my sister would roll our eyes like, oh, shut up. I don't want to hear about this anymore. Um, it, I have a unique ability to empathize with other people and other cultures who have gone through oppression because oppression is oppression no matter what especially with my black brothers and sisters right now who are who a lot of them are legitimately hurting right now have this unique ability right and like you said Philippe this is our cultural uh, a moment in the midst of not only a health pandemic but we're going through a cultural pandemic I mean I shared a a video with with you guys Uh, it was a video of, of Guy dressed up like Batman going through a city. I mean, this is what it feels like, a bad episode of Gotham. What I'm seeing in the news right now, it's just like a bad episode of, of, of a, I don't know, some comic book, some surreal reality. I mean, it was already weird with COVID, but now we're going through this. And, and, and this is not God's ideal for people. God's ideal for people is that he wants people to be reconciled with him. He wants people to be reconciled to each other. Um, but, but what is it? What is it that keeps us from, from this ideal that God wants for us. And so you talk about the heart of God moving towards the margins. You talk about the heart of people. Uh, um, I'm going to talk about the heart of the gospel, the movement of the gospel. Because verse 3, God tells Jonah the reason he's sending him is because God wants Jonah or wants to use Jonah as an instrument to raise and to talk about the injustices that are happening in Nineveh. And Jonah doesn't want to go. And maybe it's because he's comfortable in the king's court or maybe because he's, you know, hyper-nationalistic. I don't know. But I think, and I believe, another variable, right, another reason could be that he doesn't want to see their repentance. Mm -hmm. He wants to see their destruction. And a lot of the things that you mentioned, these horrible things that they would do, you kind of get it. I understand. He wants to see their doom. And, but this is contrary to the spirit of Jesus, right? To love your enemy. Jonah doesn't want to bless those who, would, you know, who, who was cursing him and his people uh, here in the text. He was hyper-nationalistic. He was turning a little bit into a, a, a racist. And, and, and in his mind, God was too soft. And so he decides to, he decides to move away from the direction of God's word because it called his supremacy into question here. I mean, what would make a white supremacist more frustrated or more angry other than taking God's free mercy, right, to a community of black people? What would make a, a, a Nazi, you know, going back to, to World, War, World War II, more angry and frustrated than, than taking the offer of God's free mercy into a Jewish ghetto? What, what would make a, 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 an American nationalist more angry and more frustrated than taking God's word of acceptance to his neighbor who doesn't, you know, who don't speak any English, you know? I mean, this is the reality that we live in. The lesson that, that God's trying to teach Jonah and the lesson that God is trying to teach us through uh, uh, this book or through him is that God loves to show mercy and he wants us to do justice, right? To love mercy and to always walk humbly alongside with him. And the reason we need to align our hearts with God's heart is because when we live the gospel, when we embody the gospel, we're going to discover that this mercy that we're, that we're given out, this mercy that we've received and that we're given out to people, it has no racial, it has no ethnic, it has no national barriers that can disqualify a person from God's love and disqualify a person from our love. Jonah hated the free mercy with God. And if we're honest, church, sometimes we hate it as well. 
We hate it as well because it confronts us and it exposes some of the evils that lives in our own hearts here, which moves and always moves in the opposite direction when we are under the weight and pressure of God's word, other than the heart of the gospel. When our hearts begin to move in sync and beat and pulse and sync with the gospel, we become the kind of people that say, you know what? I want to find the places that are unraveling. I want to find the places that are falling apart, which by the way, are not, uh, they're not too hard to find nowadays. And I want to place myself. I want to weave myself. I want to thread myself into those places to do justice the kind of people that say, you know what, when I get to the top of my profession, whether it's an artist or a teacher or, or somebody in politics, I want to disadvantage myself for the advantage of people who live in my community, people who live in my city. Because if, you, if you've been saved by grace, it's impossible to look at somebody who lives in the margins and feels superior to them. If you know that you've been saved by grace, it's impossible to look at somebody else with a different pigmentation in their skin and feel superior to them. If you know that you've been saved by grace, it is impossible to look at someone with a different sexual orientation than you do and feel superior to them. It's impossible to feel this way. God will teach Jonah. God will teach Jonah here that the way you relate to people, right, in Nineveh is the way you relate to me. The way you love them is the way you love Because God knows what it's like to be under the weight of oppression. He knows, Jonah. He knows what it's like. He knows what it feels like to be mistreated. He knows what it feels like to be uh, uh, illegally uh, 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 interrogated. He knows what it feels like to stand up to power and to be murdered and killed for it. And if you're wondering where do we see that in the text, we see it at the cross. We see God naked. We see God poor. We see God thirsty. We see God taking the place of the poor and marginalized at the cross. And when you see Jesus, when you see him saying, hey, I deserve condemnation, I deserve condemnation, right? Or rather, sorry, I deserve justice rather than condemnation for you so that you can receive, so that you can receive a, a justice. You deserve condemnation, but you're going to receive justice. And by the way, you're going to receive it, and it's not going to destroy you to the degree that we see that and commit our lives to that, to that core principle right in our lives. You'll become the kind of person that, that, that our city and our community and our nation desperately needs to see right now, a person of healing, a person of reconciliation. Amen. Man, Jesus, as you're saying that, she's the better Jonah, you know, and we're the Ninevites. And he gave himself for us so that we might be reconciled to God. And we might, as you said, Sam, begin the ministry of reconciliation. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians says that we are about the ministry of reconciliation. We are Christ's ambassadors, and God is making his appeal through us. How is God making his appeal through us? That's the question we're all asking. God, how are you going to make your appeal through us now? How do we do that? What does that look like? I mean, we see so many examples of how to love our neighbor and, and how to be about reconciliation in all through Scripture and in the New Testament especially. But there's a passage I was reading this week in Luke chapter 3 where we see John the Baptist, a man who his life was about reconciliation, was preparing the way for Christ so people could be reconciled to him. And he's baptizing people in Luke chapter 3, and it says the soldiers come up to him and they say, hey, what should we do? And he says, don't shake down people. Don't blackmail people. The tax collectors come and say, hey, what, what, what should we do, John? He says, don't extort people. The crowd comes to Jonah, as, or John the Baptist, and they're getting baptized. They say, hey, what should we do? And John the Baptist says, if you have two coats, 
give one to somebody who doesn't have one. So what do we see here? What does the ministry of reconciliation look like? You see, the ministry of reconciliation, as God is making his appeal through us, is doing what is necessary to love and care for people, to model God's heart so that they might be reconciled back to Jesus. They might be, that you might prepare the way for Jesus in their life. It is to live equitably. You see, we are fighting in this country, and we should continue to fight in this country for equality. But you can fight for equality and, be, and sacrifice nothing. You can fight for equality and say, I have two coats, and I'm not going to give anything up. I'll just go on social media, and I'll just yell that other people should have two coats too. But I'm not going to give anything to anyone else. You see, we're to fight for equality, church. But we're to fight for equality by living equitably, by giving out of our surplus, by giving what we have, by giving our voice to the voiceless, by giving our time, by giving our talents, by giving our influence, by giving all the things that God has given us, all the blessings, all the privileges, all the opportunities, taking what we have where we have extra, where we have surplus. If we have two coats, we're to give one away. How do we be about the ministry of reconciliation in a time of uncertainty? We ask God, God, what do I have to give? God, what do I have to give? And give me the courage to give it so that people might be reconciled to Christ. Man, I'd like to end our time here with a, with a word of encouragement to you, church. It's okay sometimes to pat ourselves on the back. <laughs> it's okay. I mean, I see the heart of the gospel here at Crossbridge. Yeah. There's a commitment uh, to learn the gospel and, and to allow the gospel to inform every single area of our lives here at Crossbridge. I see the heart of the gospel here. Uh, when, when I first came to Emmanuel, this is Crossbridge's uh, former name, 12 years ago, the church didn't look like it does today. I mean, you saw the band leading us in worship, even though some of them have very fair skin, but all of there's there's no there was no Anglo uh, member in the band. You, I, mean, I think we have some had Equatorians, Colombians, African Americans. There's no Anglo Americans I think in the band this this week. And uh, Carter I think is the only white pastor at uh, at Crossbridge. We are we are a multi-site, multi-ethnic, and minority-led church. And church, this is the minority of churches in America. As Dr. King used to say, the 11 o'clock hour in America is the most segregated hour of our nation. And, and that's not the reality here at Crossridge. It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing to be able to, to look around. Well, now we have these empty rooms, but even on stage here, um, it, it's, it's a beautiful thing to look around when, when we get back to in-personal in gatherings and, and to see the diversity of our church. And, and the leadership that, uh, that is diverse in, in our church as well. I mean, we can do better, but, but, but it's beautiful. It's, it, it, it's life-giving to be able to see that. And, and, and I know why. I mean, I, I myself am, am an immigrant. I'm an immigrant. Um, I was born in Brazil, you know, attended elementary school here in the United States, uh, married an American girl, moved back to Brazil. My life was always back and forth, but, but I'm an immigrant. And uh, it, I, I, I think that the, the result of what we have today goes back to two things. Uh, number one, the, the, the city of Miami. I, I know my gifts. 
I know the gifts that God has deposited me to, to lead, uh, but, but I know that I would have, been, would have not been called into any other context 12 years ago, if not in the city of Miami. It, it's a blessing to live in the city. There is racism here. There's a lot of challenges in the city. But uh, there's no other city in America where um, the minorities are in power. You know, you think about uh, diversity in New York and L.A., the power's still in the hands of old white males. Uh, here in Miami, the power's in the hands of the minorities. Over 50% of Miami's population is foreign-born. And so this is a city of refuge for, for, for people of different races, for immigrants. Uh, that's why they come here. It's not just because of geographic proximity. There, there's something there as well to Latin America, but it's more than that. It has become a city of refuge. And, and I was welcomed by the city. I, I was also welcomed by the, uh, the, the leadership of, of Emmanuel. You know, when we got to Emmanuel, it was all uh, old and white. There's nothing wrong with old and white. Um, <laughs> it's good, but, but the body of Christ can't just look old and white the same way that the body of Christ can't just look black or white. And, uh, um, but they had the humility um, to call uh, a, a pastor from the margins, a brown pastor, <laughs> to lead them. And uh, I, I believe that, uh, that God has honored uh, your, your humility, your willingness to give up power. And what we see here today is a demonstration, is a demonstration uh, of that. You know, every time I think about it, it brings tears to my eyes. You know, we say here at Crossbridge that our, our fourth core value is to be catalytic to a movement. And a movement of the gospel has begun among us. And people, this is a season for us to step into hard into this movement of the gospel so that the, the margins uh, could be welcomed into the center. Will you pray with me? Uh, Father, we, uh, we are great for your generosity and mercy over our lives. It's a beautiful thing when the gospel is applied and when outsiders are welcomed in and when power is shared and when there is equity and equality. And so, Father, we pray that you would continue to pour out your grace in the life of our church so that we would be this powerful demonstration of the kingdom in Miami. Father, we are not perfect. We have many flaws. Even in our own congregation, I would imagine there's issues of racism and idolatry towards you know, our nation, nationalism. Father, may we repent of that. We want to return to you. We want our hearts to be where your heart is. We want our heart aligned to your heart. We pray this in Jesus' name.